three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with some of these people. I just, put down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? All right, trust me. Take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. Hello, namaste, shalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits episode thirteen. I'm your host, Ricky Rosen, and essentially this is a podcast about just about everything, ranging from psychology and philosophy to nutrition to dating and back again. This week, we are going to be having an in-depth discussion on death. You heard me correctly. We're going to spend the next hour, hour and 15 minutes talking about what death is, answering questions like, when when do we first learn what death is? Do children have an understanding of death? How do we distract ourselves from our mortality in spite of the existential paradox and our dueling physical and conceptual selves? How can accepting your death and the death of your loved ones enrich your life? And finally, what can we learn about how to live our lives today from the regrets that people in hospice care acknowledge on their deathbeds? All that and a whole lot more on this different kind of episode of... Nervous Habits. Anyway, send those emails in to nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com, nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't followed us on Instagram, please do so. It's at nervoushabitspodcast. As I said, you know, the, the tone of this episode is going to be a little bit different. I know usually, you know, I like to keep things light and goofy and, you know, jump around all over the place. Um, this is an episode I've wanted to do for a while, and and actually before I, I delve into that, uh, let me let me first get a couple of of emails out of the way. Um, we did get uh, some listeners sharing feedback and posing questions via email uh, over the last week. Um, first, we have David R. David R. wrote in about episode nine. That was the conversation on uh, free will and the passage of time. David wrote. Just listen to episode nine. It was the episode about fate. He wrote, all the topics tied together really well. I think one of the reasons that so many people choose the nine to five life is that it allows you to be able to reliably predict certain aspects of the future, i.e. I'll be working in this city with these people on these types of topics, excuse me, and can expect to earn this amount of money for the time that I dedicate. I feel like it ties in with our genetic disposition to seek security and structure to build a foundation for our offspring. Would be interested to see what percentage of people who work more independent lifestyles would answer the question on the likelihood of them wanting to have children. So David, you, you know, you raise some great points and obviously appreciate the feedback here. When Jeremy and I talked about the best life and, and what living the best life would entail, we didn't really touch on starting a family and how that tied in. Um, it was more along the lines of, you know, how how we would be spending our lives and whether or not working at a, you know, a forty hour a week job was the most meaningful um, way to achieve some semblance of purpose in our existences. So uh, again, that's an important consideration for sure that I think people have to bear in mind is, you know, do you want to start a family, and if so. Maybe the the best life, the nine to five life, might be a necessary evil that you know would allow you to 
provide for your children perhaps. So important um, consideration there, David, and, and thank you for writing in. Megan G., uh, she, she wrote back, uh, I think a couple episodes ago, um, wrote another email, this this time on episode 11, the, uh, uh, the episode two episodes ago on uh, technology and privacy. Uh, Megan had said, uh, listen to episode 11, really enjoyed the discussions of technology and privacy. You touched on the terms of service agreement that the users sign with Facebook when you sign up for their service. In one of my classes on this, we learned that uh, the terms of service agreement is essentially a contract that Facebook and similar companies can use your information however they wish. They are permitted to market your photos and videos and posts while not compensating you at all. Just another way that we're being taken advantage of through this system. Very interesting segment and episode. I was not aware of that um, and definitely provides some additional context and perspective on those terms of service agreements, uh, Megan, that that I think people tend to, uh, you know, uh, just kind of breeze on by without reading. Um, a little alarming that we can be taken advantage of to that extent, um, but, you know, just reinforces a lot of the messaging from uh, the technology and privacy episode that that you you need to be vigilant about what you're you're putting out there and how little control you have over it um, and how little privacy you have throughout the process. So thanks for writing in about that. Um, one more I want to share with you. Kaylee wrote in, um, no last name here or no last initial. Katie wrote in. Uh, excuse me, Kaylee wrote in about episode twelve on education, the one that I did with Adam last week. Uh, Kaylee writes. Okay, so the conversation on education was phenomenal. Both you and your guest had super interesting information and statistics, especially the prepping 60% of unknown jobs part and debunking the myth that teachers have summers off. So that was Adam, Adam's contributions. Um, uh, Kaylee, note, sex ed can be a huge issue in schools. While some, some schools do cover it in health, certain private schools only teach abstinence. It may be interesting to look into, right? And that, uh, Kaylee, that's why, um, and this was something we covered. I mentioned it It should be prioritized in health classes. You know, you do run into issues, uh, to your point, in private schools, uh, you know, magna schools or charter schools where there's religious, uh, you know, clashes with the curriculum, but certainly in the public school context is an important uh, factor, uh, Kaylee also writes, also, I'm assuming you've both studied it. If and when you have uh, the guest on again, uh, you both should dive into the different schooling methods in different countries and compare stats like in Japan, Norway, and Uganda. Between the different methods and hours and technologies, it could make for an interesting concert, uh, conversation. Okay. Uh, I, really, I also really enjoyed the analysis of potential candidates. It was very easy to follow and informative. I thought your discussion about ways to hold President Trump accountable for empty promises instead of personal attacks was very interesting. So much of our news is based on emotional tweets and even more emotional reactions to them. Maintaining calm composure and leading with facts could make a candidate really attractive to voters. It certainly would create quite a contrast. Uh, Kaylee, thank you so much for your email. Uh, You raise a lot of excellent points. Definitely will uh, take your suggestion on the... um, uh, comparison of different schooling methods in uh, American culture compared to 
uh, European and, and East Asian culture and African culture into uh, consideration. I think th- that's a phenomenal idea for a future uh, education segment. We'll see if, if Adam would come back on for that. And yeah, I mean, absolutely what you're saying with uh, with regards to the 2020 coverage from the Democratic side is valid. I mean, we have to, uh, Democrats have to have to really consider if they want to make the campaign against Trump uh, fact-laden or if they want to, you know, counter emotion with emotion. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that's uh, of significance as well. Um, so thank you, David, Megan, and Kaylee for your uh, emails this week. Uh, and again, you know, keep keep the emails coming. Love to love to hear from you guys. Uh, your questions, your suggestions uh, for future segments, um, what you want to hear more about. Uh, write those emails into nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at nervoushabitspodcast. So as I kind of started to say a moment ago, uh, right off the bat, I have to warn you guys, this is going to be a heavy episode. Like so heavy that. I wasn't really sure if I wanted to even record this episode. It's going to be different. You know, my, my tone's going to be different. My pace is going to be different. Um, I'm not really sure where this conversation is going to go. Uh, but it will be a lot. It will give you a lot to think about. Um, you know, it might be difficult to listen to, especially if some of you have had personal experiences with the subject material. Um, so, you know, this isn't something, isn't a conversation that you're super comfortable with or ready for. Definitely understand, you know, if, if, if now is not the right time to listen to it. Um, I don't know how long this episode is going to be because I do have a lot to say and I have a bunch of books that I'm going to be calling upon, but this is one conversation I'm not going to cut short, guys. Um, I've been planning this episode for a long time, really since I started Nervous Habits and I want to do it justice. This, this isn't going to be a religious episode. You know, we're going to be looking at death from a secular and a psychological point of view. And we're going to be diving into how humans think about death uh, as a collective, you know, and, and, and bringing together different perspectives on, on death. You know, the, there will be some anecdote, some, some personal thoughts and feelings here. Uh, as I mentioned, literature, you know, we might, I, I might um, you know, pull in some pop culture, maybe a movie or TV show if it's relevant. But really, you know, this this is going to be as improvised as um, as one of my episodes has been. Uh, so with that kind of precursor, uh, you know that that um, uh, you know with that as a an initial note, I do want to dive into the discussion on on death. Um, in my opinion, I think that the fear of death in humans really has to do with the total loss of control. I feel that all our lives we're living this illusion that we're in complete control of our fates. You know, we all have miniature God complexes. You know, we're we're managing our schedules. And we're controlling our children, if we have kids, or our pets, our finances. And we're doing this on a subconscious level to feel as if we have some power over it. Some, some, some control over what's going to happen next. 
And maybe you can relate to this on a conscious level. Maybe you're you're all too aware of this sensation. Maybe maybe this is the first time you're really thinking about how the desire for control really rules every facet of your life. But the reality is, and this is a reality that a lot of people don't um, they don't quite learn until I feel later in life or at least in young adulthood, is we don't have control. And we know that because certain areas of our life, like our health, are completely unpredictable. You know, something like disease can can come out of nowhere. You know, you can be the healthiest person in the world one day and, and diagnosed with, you know, uh, terminal cancer another day. And dying and death is is really, the end of our lives is completely unpredictable. You never know when it's going to happen. Steve Jobs, one of the most successful men who ever lived, this is something my dad actually always says, all the money in the world and all the the claim and the fame and the, the celebrity, the success, all of it couldn't save Steve Jobs from pancreatic cancer. And so I think to begin this conversation, we really have to acknowledge the lack of control. You know, there are some factors in your control. I mentioned health. You can eat healthy and avoid smoking and stay out of unsafe areas after dark and don't get in the car with someone who's been drinking. You can do all that. But that's not going to stop you from getting a random stroke or heart attack one day or getting into a car accident or getting shot in you know one of these tragic school shootings or you know shooting at the mall you know it's a it's a sick dangerous world out there and some things these things are out of your control and i think that's part of the reason why people turn to religion for comfort about these issues to acknowledge that let's be honest we have no control and to be humble in the face of this i think that if you break something like religion down to if you break it down to its simplest elements i think that religion is humility it's acknowledging one's utter lack of importance in the face of something greater that being the existence of god so personally, I, I have always been weirdly interested by our both our reaction to and our avoidance of death. A few episodes ago, I, I may have mentioned that when I was in college, I took a class called The Metaphysics of Death. It was a philosophy class, and it was probably the most eerie and thought-provoking class academic experience I've ever had in my life. It wasn't so much about the psychology of dying as it was the philosophy, the semantics, the the meaning of what death of of what death what purpose death serves, of what it means. You know, and, and it did bring in factors like the passage of time, which I alluded to a couple episodes ago, but I do want to revisit in this segment. And so the first question we grappled with in the class was why do we fear death? But we don't fear the period of time before we were born, uh, what we call prenatal non-existence. 
You know, because if you think about it, let's say you live to be 80 years old between 1990 and, you know, 2070. You're terrified of what comes after 2070, a world without, you know, without you. But you're not really terrified of, you know, the 1800s, the early 1900s, the world without you as well. But it's asymmetrical, you know, or excuse me, it's symmetrical. And one of my professors, uh, the professor in the class, Paolo Yorkrau, used to say that if you visualize your existence, it's an island surrounded at all sides by non-existence. Before you were born, you didn't exist. After you die, you don't exist. But the wrinkle is that the vast majority of people are haunted by their fear of the future non-existence, but not their past non-existence, which is nonsensical. Death is the mirror image of the prior abyss. And since no one finds it disturbing to contemplate the eternity preceding his own birth, you know, why, why should we be perturbed by our posthumous non-existence? Why should we care about what happens after we die? And so this was a question that, that we posed again and again. Why do we have anxiety about the future but not the past? And let me give you an example. This was, this was something from the class to really illustrate this question. Let's say there's a man who is temporally neutral, meaning he cannot see time. He cannot see the past or the future. Every event just looks the same. And let's say this temporally neutral man wakes up in a hospital bed and the nurse tells him, good news, your operation happened yesterday. The ordinary person might be relieved. Oh, it's over. Thank God it's in the past. But this temporally neutral man would re react with perplexity. His response would be, why is that good news? My ordeal is just as painful, it's just as long, and it's just as much a part of my life. Why should it make a difference to me now that my, my ordeal is in the past? So this is a temporally neutral attitude. It's not, it's, the temporally neutral attitude says that it doesn't matter if something's in the past or future, it's still the same experience. But, this temporally neutral attitude, you know, you, you've probably figured out it's not realistic. This isn't how humans are hardwired. At our core, we're predisposed to be biased against future pains. And in terms of that, that human bias towards the future, let me give you another example. And this was, you know, was again something we covered in the class. We all know the difference in our attitude that we would take if we were told we had a terrifying toothache at a as a child as opposed to being told that such a pain awaits us in 10 minutes right imagine that you know if, if someone were to tell you you know if someone were to, to impose upon you the pain of a toothache a toothache 10 minutes from now as opposed to just recalling having you recall the pain from when you were you know a toddler it's a completely different situation, and that's because as human beings, we naturally focus on future evils. We consider these with fear and anxiety rather than past ones, which we kind of regard with a lack of interest. You know, and, and this bears in mind the conversation I had with uh, my guest Jeremy Pactor a couple episodes ago where we talked about how there's no such thing as the present. All of us are always living in the direction of the future. You know, as you're, as you're, th as you're thinking, forming your thoughts, 
and the action potentials are firing along the synaptic connections in your brain, right? Like nothing is happening at the at, at the exact moment in time. It's always geared towards the future. And it's not just our fears. Our desires are also forward-looking. Someone would say, I want to go to Venice next winter. You wouldn't say, I want to have gone to Venice last winter. You know, that, that just sounds syntactically confusing. I want to go to Venice next winter, not I want to have gone to Venice last winter. We're eager to anticipate. We're eager to experience. We're eager to want future pleasures. And we dread future pains. Even though, you guys, even though we look upon past pains and past pleasures both with apathy. This is the crazy part with the asymmetrical attitude with which um, we view time. If there's a painful experience from our childhood or something, you know, a, a, a time that we looked upon with pleasure and anticipation, we will look at them both with apathy. Because anticipation cannot have a backwards-looking counterpart. So again, I mean, this begs the question, why is death even such a bad thing if, if, we, if we try to have this temporally neutral attitude? And it really has to do with loss and deprivation, okay? Because if we look at prenatal non-existence, the period before we were alive, that doesn't deprive us of anything. We weren't born so the non-existence that we experience, we're not losing anything. But if the root of the fear of death is the termination of life, then the prenatal non-existence, there's, there's no termination. It comes before life. There's no loss. Death is the loss of life, if, if that makes sense. I, I know it might be a little, a little like circular. So if you look at the death of someone at 24 years old and the death of someone at 82, when the 24-year-old dies, it's tragic because he could have died later. He could have lived you know, 60 years longer, could have experienced a lot, but it's the loss of potentiality, the loss of the rest of his life. But when the 82-year-old dies, it's not as tragic because he's not losing as much. He's not being deprived of as much. You know, we talked about or, or I alluded to, you know, the visceral tragedy of, of a child's death and how they're deprived of, of, a, of a future overflowing with happiness and prosperity and achievement and success. That is a tragedy because of the loss. Whereas when someone dies of old age, I mean, death in and of itself is tragic, but not comparatively so. So... You know, I, I want to get these these ideas in your head as we begin our conversation of death, just to kind of so you can mull over, you know, why what makes death an inherently negative experience. And this was these again; these are philosophical concepts, philosophical arguments. Um, most of them for me, gleaned from my seminar on the metaphysics of death, but something to keep in your mind as we continue this conversation. The core of this 
segment, you guys, that, that, that I really want to dive into is how and why we distract ourselves from our death. One of my all-time favorite books is the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. Really, really famous book. Um, and it's, it, is a, it is a difficult book to get through. But whenever anyone asks me, I mean, it's, the book, the book is, you know, was written in 1973, so it's over 40 years old, and it's timeless. It focuses on the human condition, condition and the psychology of how we think about death. In the beginning of the book, Becker writes about this. And he says, The idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way that this is the final destiny for man. So what he's saying is that men... Everyone knows on a logical, intellectual level that death is our final destiny, but consciously, this is something that, that we, we avoid at every turn. And Becker talks about a few vital truths about mankind. First, he writes about the problem of heroism. He says that our main calling on this planet is to be heroic. All of life is a theater for heroism. He says that our entire culture is a cultural hero system that sustains and drives men. Becker writes, Man will lay down his life for his country, his society, his family. He is capable of the highest generosity and self-sacrifice. But he needs to feel and believe that what he is doing is truly heroic, timeless, and supremely meaningful. Becker says that all people want to be given the opportunity, the urge to heroism. He says that minority groups in present-day industrial society who shout for freedom and dignity are really just clumsily asking that they be given a sense of primary heroism of which, uh, of, of which they've been cheated um, historically. Becker also says that our second major problem, and again, the reason why I'm listing these is because we're putting... So, you know, want to backtrack. So Becker's book, again, is all about why we distract ourselves from from the fact that we're mortal and the fact that we're we're going to die. And so he out, he outlines the problems of heroism and the second major problem, narcissism, which I'll get to in a second, to kind of illustrate the paint the picture of, of the human psyche. You know, what what it is we're we're afraid of, what it is we're thinking about. Um and by the way, I I, I, I know that, you know, you're not listening to this. This isn't an audiobook. You're not you don't want to hear me just read Denial of Death, but it is important you know, to, for, for me to to, um, to get across these these sentiments, and I, you know, I can't paraphrase it, paraphrase them. This is you know one of the greatest literary achievements, in my opinion, in, in human history. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna you know, uh, it's gonna be a little quote heavy, unfortunately. So Becker says our second major problem is the, is our narcissism that we are hopelessly absorbed with ourselves. This should come as no surprise to you guys, but he writes. It is one of the meaner aspects of narcissism that if we feel that practically everyone is expendable except ourselves, we should feel prepared, as Emerson once put it, 
to recreate the whole world out of ourselves, even if no one existed. This sounds like an episode of uh, The Twilight Zone, doesn't it? Um, so this book was written in 1973, but, you know, boy, does this seem relevant today. Narcissism is is timeless. You know, it's today with social media, uh, you know, the Instagram generation and, and mirrors. I mean, this is something vanity we've talked about seems like dozens of times. Um, I, I think everyone would agree in, in that narcissism is the plight uh, and really the deadliest sin for, for, you know, for humans. So with those two problems in mind and with pay, paying careful attention to narcissism, uh, Becker goes on to say, our organism is ready to fill the world all alone, which, which we just talked about, even if our mind shrinks at the thought. This narcissism is what keeps men marching into point-blank fire in wars. At heart, one doesn't feel like he will die. He only feels sorry for the man next to him. Freud's explanation for this was that the unconscious does not know death or time. In man's physiochemical inner organic recesses, he fears immortal. So I'll say again, Freud's explanation for this was that the unconscious does not know death or time. In man's physiochemical inner organic recesses, he feels immortal. So essentially what Becker is doing here is bringing up a powerful dichotomy between what we think on a conscious level, that we will die, again, knowing logically, intellectually, we will die, and unconsciously what we feel, which is that in the in the in the basis of our cellular composition, we feel like we will live forever. He talks about this later. I'm going to get into it again, but but there, there's that dichotomy between what we think and what what we unconsciously what our cells were driving them. This this sense of immortality that's just misplaced. That's not true. And one of Becker's major arguments. Actually, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna sidetrack. I'm gonna backtrack for a second. So Becker Becker also says, what a man needs to feel most secure in in the face of these problems of heroism and narcissism is his self esteem, which is really molded and embodied in a man's childhood. So Becker writes, in childhood we see the struggle for self esteem at its least disguised. The child is unashamed about what he needs and wants most. His whole organism shouts the claims of his natural narcissism. So this should come as no surprise to anyone that, that has ever dealt with children. We know that children are true, unabashed narcissists. They cry for attention. It, I mean, they're 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 you know naked and um, direct, un, as I said, unabashed in their intentions. As we age, though, we we conceal our narcissism. You know, we try to try to act like we're not vain and we're not all into ourselves. And and as Becker said, we're not trying to recreate the entire world out of ourselves. We're concealing it. And to support this supposition, Becker argues that sibling rivalry shows that at our heart, we have the desire as humans to stand out, to be the one in creation. Becker writes, sibling rivalry is a critical problem that reflects the basic human condition. It is not that children are vicious, selfish, or domineering. It is that they so openly express man's tragic destiny. He must desperately justify himself 
as an object of primary value in the universe. He must stand out, be a hero, make the biggest possible contribution to world life, show that he counts more than anything or anyone else. So we're all just attention-craving narcissists. And with this as the context, Becker lays out his thesis on the fear of death. Death anxiety. And he argues that death, the fear of death in all people originates with us as children. But as we grow up, we push it down so far that we never feel or think about it as adults. Becker doesn't say that children have a fear of death per se. He concedes that death is too abstract an idea, too removed from a child's experience for them to understand at the age of three or four. You know, like how can a child doesn't even know, you know, uh, doesn't know how to count or, or you know, how, how to chew with his mouth closed, let alone the, the, an abstract contact, uh, concept like the end of existence. But a child that age does have anxieties. Becker says he's dependent on the mother, experiences loneliness when she's absent, frustration when he's deprived of gratification, irritation and hunger and discomfort and so on. If he were abandoned to himself, this world would drop away and his organism must sense that at some level, must sense this at some level. We call this anxiety of object loss. And isn't this anxiety then a natural organismic fear of annihilation? So here Becker's arguing that all the anxieties that child experience, experiences are just manifestations of a fear of death. So they fear death as kids, but not explicitly. He is essentially saying that death is a complex symbol to children. It's not any particularly sharply defined thing. It's more of a, of a general you know, shroud that manifests in different forms. And he says this or, you know, rather, he illustrates this by saying, the child's concept of death is not a single thing, but it is rather a composite of mutually contradictory paradoxes. Death itself is not only a state, but a complex symbol, the significance of which will vary from one person to another and from one culture to another. So I will say, kind of pause the discussion here, everything I'm saying about the fear of death and how it's how it ties into the human condition and how it's framed in our society really has a Western cultural bias. I don't know enough about how East Asian culture, um, African culture might view death. Um, I do think that certain qualities in human beings are uh, omnipresent across cultural contexts, but I, I do want to have as a caveat that I'm really you know, going at the dis this discussion from a Western uh, mindset. But, you know, Becker understands from a utilitarian framework, from the point of view of someone who's, um, who's very pragmatic, that the fear of death isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, he argues that it's necessary for our survival. Since this fear is actually an expression of the instinct of self-preservation of man, which functions as a constant drive to maintain life and to master the dangers that threaten life. So like most fears, our fear of death has utility. Okay, there, there is practical utility to this. But we can't be walking around thinking about our deaths all the time, so you know, we wouldn't be able to function. And so Becker says, if this fear of death were as constantly conscious 
we should be unable to function normally. So it must be properly repressed to keep us living with any modicum of comfort. So the answer to our question, why do we distract ourselves from death, is that sentence. It must be properly repressed to keep us living with any modicum of comfort. We need to push this fear down as we age in order to live our lives comfortably. Yes, the fear of death is utile. And yes, it's important to our self-preservation. If you're walking in the woods late at night and you see a bear, your fear of death is what's going to kick that sympathetic nervous system into overdrive and get your ass out of the forest and to safety. If you're pushed into the ocean, you fall off a boat, the fear of death is what's going to keep you, you know, doggy paddling above the water so you survive. It's useful that we fear death, but we can't be thinking about it all the time because we would not be able to live with any modicum of comfort. So how exactly do we avoid thinking about this fear on a psychological level? You know, we have this paradox. We have this ever-present fear of death in the normal biological functioning of our instinct of self-preservation. It kicks in when we need to survive. But we also have this utter obliviousness to this fear in our conscious life. You know, you're not thinking about death when you're waiting in line at 7-Eleven for your coffee. You're not thinking about death when you're playing video games with your friends or, you know, when you're when you're having a delicious meatloaf for dinner. But again, if someone kicks down the door and your life isn't at stake, that that number one, that ever-present fear of death just kicks in. So how do we reconcile this dichotomy? And this was the confusing um, element of of Becker's literature and, and really of the human condition. How do we reconcile this? And it's through repression. It's through repression. And if you're not familiar with repression, and this is something I learned having studied psychology in college, it's something that, you know, um, I think my sister, uh, who's in a doctoral program, learns about quite a bit. Repression is a psychological, it's a defense mechanism that you use. Um, Technically, I I think the definition Let me see if I can pull up a definition for you guys. Repression is the act of subduing one's thoughts, feelings, desires, or impulses in the unconscious mind. So Becker writes of this repression. Excuse me. Becker writes, Therefore, in normal times, we move about actually without ever believing in our own death, as if we fully believed in our own corporeal immortality. We are intent of mastering death. A man will say, of course, that he knows he will die someday, but he does not really care. He's having a good time with living, and he does not think about death, and does not care to bother about it. But this is a purely intellectual verbal admission. The effect of fear is repressed. Repression is a neat defense mechanism, you guys. If you've ever been through a traumatic experience, which I really hope you haven't, um, let's say maybe you've been abused, sexually assaulted, um, you've been in a fight, rather than forcing yourself to relive that experience every time it's triggered 
by a cue, by a memory. Your brain activates a default mode to save you that pain. And a lot of times memories are repressed so deep in your unconscious that you know you need to be hypnotized. People undergo hypnosis and serious uh, therapy in order to have you recall those memories. So repression serves a cognitive uh, you, you know, purpose in saving you from that pain. And Becker argues, and I agree with this assessment, that all of us repress our fear of death every single day. Because as Freud believes, the unconscious mind does not know death. I mentioned this a little earlier, um, you know, and, and I think it was a quote from Becker that all of us in our minds think we're think we are immortal, even if our bodies are not. And this is where his argument gets really interesting. And this might be my very favorite part of the whole book. So if I'm putting you to sleep with philosophy, and you know, this is a you know, this discussion is isn't enthusing you, just perk up your ears for a moment because th- this is worth listening to. So this guy, okay, um, this guy, Ernest Becker, he talks about how men and women walk around all day with these repressed thoughts and fears of dying. But what's the unintended consequence of this? There has to be something, some implication that this has on our psyche, on our well-being, on our physiology, on our bodies. And... Becker says that essentially all of our anxiety is a byproduct of our repressed fears associated with death. He he writes, The result was the emergence of man as we know him, a hyper-anxious animal who constantly invents reasons for anxiety even when there are none. I'll read that again. The result was the emergence of man as we know him, a hyper-anxious animal who constantly invents reasons for anxiety even when there are none. Does this sound like anyone you know? It sounds like me. It sounds like most of my friends and family for sure. And Becker was not talking out of his ass. This was this was an accomplished academic, a professor, an anthropologist, a sociologist. This guy knew his stuff. And he is alleging that all of our anxieties and neuroses can be traced to the repression of our fear of death. This was a, this is a truly um, earth-shattering revelation to come to. And it's something that, that, you know, I'm, I'm constantly wrapping my mind around. You know, we talked about mental illness and that and how, you know, as someone who I deal with anxiety and, um, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, I think in many ways, you know, a, to- a total lack of control and repressed fear of your mortality and the sheer transience of your existence, I believe that this is the root of man as a hyperanxious animal who invents reasons for anxiety even when there are none. So I want to keep going here because there's still a couple more um, you know, things I want to get out of looking at, at Becker's book. So Becker argues the essence of man is his paradoxical nature. 
how men are half animal and half symbolic. Becker calls this the existential paradox in humans. He writes, man has a symbolic anxiety, excuse me, man has a symbolic identity that brings him sharply out of nature. He is a symbolic self, a creature with a name, a life history. He is a creator with a mind that soars out to speculate about atoms and infinity, who can place himself imaginatively at a point in space and contemplate bemusedly his own planet. Yet at the same time, a man is a worm and food for worms. He is out of nature and hopelessly in it. He is dual, up in the stars and yet housed in a heart-pumped, breath-gasping body that once belonged to a fish and still carries the gill marks to prove it. His body is a material, fleshy casing that is alien to him in many ways, the strangest and most repugnant way being that it aches and bleeds and will decay and die. Man is literally split in two. He has an awareness of his own splendid uniqueness in that he sticks out of nature with a towering majesty. And yet he goes back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. Maybe my favorite passage of any book I've ever read. You know, this is a terrifying dilemma to live with. We have this mind that can create scientific inventions, you know, the the telescope and the printing press and the, the automobile and the computer and the, you know, things that will live on for centuries, maybe forever. Medicine, curing seemingly incurable diseases, mathematics, And yet, at the same time, man is just an animal that will go back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. You know, lower animals don't have to ponder this because they don't have the symbolic identity or the self-consciousness that humans do. I hate to break it to you, but your dog is not sitting around thinking about his death or when he's going to die. Neither is your cat, neither are my birds. Um... You know, animals just don't have this this consciousness, this self-awareness, this ability to even know what death is. Uh, and this is something we explored back in episode five when we talked about consciousness in animals. But they they don't have that ability to to rec- to understand or think abstra- abstractly or hypothetically. Hypothetical thinking. They they don't have that um, specialization of their cere- cerebral cortex or the frontal lobe. They can't think about the future. But we as humans have to live with this existential paradox. And by the way, Becker argues that because lower animals don't understand this is what makes it so easy to shoot down whole herds of buffalo or elephants. The animal doesn't know that death is happening. You know, you, these, these chickens in industrial farms that are being mass killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of chickens every week or whatever the, the number is, they don't know that they're about to die. I mean, maybe on some like biological cellular level, they, they might have an instinct for self-preservation, but, but they, don't, they don't have the ability to reason what death is like humans do. So they continue to, to graze along while their friends drop alongside them. But for humans to live a whole life with the fate of death haunting one's dreams and even the most sun-filled days, it's impossible to ponder. 
And so this explains why we repress our fear of death, why we distract ourselves from thinking about it. Because can you imagine if we didn't? Imagine if we didn't care about that modicum of comfort and we just thought about our death all the time. You know, Becker says, if you let the full weight of this existential paradox sink down on your mind and feelings, it would drive any man insane. If you're walking around, you're standing at 7-Eleven, you're playing video games with your friends, you're eating meatloaf, and you're just constantly thinking consciously about the end of your existence, about the the number of seconds you have left. There's that quote from Pascal, men are so necessarily mad that not to be mad would amount to another form of madness. I don't know if you've heard it. It's a good one. Uh, and I think that would be the, the byproduct if we actually seriously contemplated our death all the time. He actually, Becker actually says, and, and I don't know if I agree with this. This is a little bit, um, you know, Becker not really staying in his lane, but he argues that people who are schizophrenic are those who actually see the human condition for what it is. Almost seems like a horror, <laughs> you know, the plot of a horror movie. He says, the schizophrenic is furthest from the animal. He lacks the secure instinctive programming of lower organisms, and he lacks the secure cultural programming of average men. No wonder he appeals to average men as crazy. I, I don't I don't know about that that that's neither here nor there but the you know the important takeaway um, is certainly that if we didn't repress our fear of death or distract ourselves from it I mean we would we would go insane you know and the question is and th- this is a question I believe I posed in the open how do we extract meaning from our death while we're alive I mean you know Becker says we have two selves right our physical self is a worm and food for the worms that goes to the bathroom and showers and bleeds and gets sick and throws up and grows hair and fingernails, and a symbolic self that can solve logarithmic equations and learn foreign languages and, you know, create a unique identity and have preferences and favorite animals and favorite breakfast cereals. Our physical self will die eventually, but our symbolic self has no death. It's essentially immortal, as as I've said several times. So Becker argues in order to, co- to reconcile the, the two selves and to compensate for our fear of the inevitable loss of our physical selves, what we try to do in our lives is we try to construct a conceptual self that will live forever. It's why we feel so conce- con- compelled to create a legacy that, that we can be remembered for long after we're born. You could argue, you guys, that the purpose of all life is legacy building. You know, in sports, you hear so-and-so is going to build a legacy to be remembered by after they retire, after they die in, I mean, in your profession, a legacy at your company to be remembered by. Writing a book is your legacy. Musicians and artists and actors, the, the legacy of their work, of their creation. Even your family is a legacy. And why are we so concerned with legacies? Becker calls these efforts our immortality projects. And he actually broadens this argument. He doesn't just say that uh, artwork or a book or your profession is, is your legacy. He says that all of human civilization, cities and governments and religion and media, all of it has been immortality projects of people who came before us. So what does this mean? This means that all of the meaning in our life is shaped by our innate desire to never die. 
or actually our innate desire never to die. Because I don't think we desire living forever, but we definitely, we desire not dying, if you can understand the, the contradiction between those two. One last quote from Becker, um, and, and, and then I'm going to move on from denial of death. Becker, Becker writes um, on the irony of man's condition. He says, the irony of man's condition is that the deepest need is to be free of the anxiety of death and annihilation. But it is life itself which awakens it. And so we must shrink from being fully alive. So we're never, so in his opinion, we're never really as alive as we can be unless we acknowledge some way. I don't know how it's done. He didn't specify this, but we find a way to acknowledge that repressed fear of death, to have it in the back of our minds at all times. Actually, we will, we will mention that in a moment um, as a way of, uh, you know, dealing with this fear of death. But Denial of Death is an incredible book. I'm not doing it justice. Um, Highly recommend it. And just a brief takeaway, you know, before I pivot to to a, you know to to a different topic here. Um, humans are the only animals that can think abstractly and hypothetically, which leads to fear uh, fear of death, death anxiety, death terror, and death terror underlies everything we do. Um, and if we do want to extract meaning from our lives, our legacies and our immortality projects are an important way to do that. So, thinking practically here. On the heels of, of Becker's arguments, should we be thinking about our death all the time? Is there a benefit to that? Is, is that healthy? You know, I don't want you guys to be listening to this and end up in therapy because you're constantly thinking about the fact that you're going to die. But I think that you do need to know that death is coming in order to appreciate life. And it's really become such a trite, hackneyed expression Live life to the fullest. Live like you're dying. Um, you know, carpe diem, seize the day. I feel like it's been said so much, it's lost its meaning. But a minute ago, I, I talked about how, or Becker mentioned that irony in man's condition, how because when we're alive, our fear of death is awakened, so we have to shrink from being fully alive. I think in order to to be fully alive, we must constantly have that fear of death or at least the knowledge of our death in our conscious minds. You need to know that things and people are finite. And you need to know it, really know it. Not know it intellectually, but know it on every level, conscious, unconscious, and subconscious. You know, my other favorite book, and I mentioned this back in, I think, episode two when I talked about Buddhism, it's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson. And Manson talks about, towards the end of the book, the value of thinking about your death. And this is this is perfectly encapsulating the point I'm trying to make. And Manson says that when you remind yourself that it's all right to die, when you accept the finality, the mortality of your existence, that is how you achieve inner peace. He says that the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans implored people to keep death in their minds at all times, to appreciate life more, and remained humble in the face of its adversities. So in that sense, I absolutely, I think that the Greeks and the Romans and other societies and, you know, 
groups that encourage this were, were spot on in that when you have death in your mind, when you know that every day might be your last, it really, it, it allows you to transcend that fear, that repressed fear that we spoke about. In Buddhism, which we talked about, the practice of meditation is a way of preparing oneself for death while still remaining alive. Mark Twain famously said, the fear of death follows from the fear of life. Any man who lives fully is prepared to die at any time. So Mark Twain, much like Becker, you see there's a synergy between all these thinkers, agrees that you can't really be alive unless you're ready to die. Unless you've accepted that you will die. And when you think about the reality of your death, it really brings things into perspective for you. You really learn what you value, what you care about, what matters to you. They say that when you die or when you have a near-death experience, I, I don't really want to talk about those because I, you know, I, I don't I don't have experience with those. I haven't really read too much about those. But when you have a near-death experience, they say that your entire life flashes before your eyes. People will uh, I guess I guess here we go talking about it, even though I said would I said it wouldn't, but people who have reported um, on it, you know, generally that they have a near-death experience have had like a a life-changing realization. You know, someone would get hit by a car and and come within an inch of death and then become an uh, you know a devout Christian, believing God, or a bullet will miss you know your heart by by a quarter of an inch or whatever, and suddenly you know you, renowned interest in your family. So considering pondering the reality of death does bring things in perspective. Another one of my favorite books it's it's called Stumbling on Happiness by Dan Gilbert. I'm not going to talk about the content of the book, but the book opens with the author inviting the reader to think about what he or she would do if you learned that you were going to die in the next 10 minutes. Gilbert writes, what would you do right now if you learned that you were going to die in 10 minutes? Would you race upstairs and light that Marlboro you've been hiding in your sock drawer since the Ford administration? Would you waltz into your boss's office and present him with a detailed description of his personal defects? Would you drive out to that steakhouse near the new mall and order a T-bone medium rare with an extra side of the really bad cholesterol? It's hard to say, of course, but of all the things you might do in your final 10 minutes, it's a pretty safe bet that few of them are things you actually did today. The takeaway there is that when we think about our impending death, it makes us strongly evaluate how we want to spend our time our energy, our attention. Or as Mark Manson says throughout the book, how we decide who and what we give our fucks to, our, our finite, the finite limited amount of fucks that we have to give. Manson writes, death is the only thing we know with any certainty, and as such, it must be the compass by which we orient all our other values and decisions. So I think it's important, and, and you know, I know I'm, I'm bordering on repetitive here, but it's important to surrender to death. I mentioned religion being akin to humility. Be humble in the face of death. Know that you will die. Know that I will die. 
Know that your friends will die. Know that my friends will die. Your family, my... Everyone in the world, everyone who's ever lived will die. Charles Bukowski, the writer, he once wrote, we all, we are all going to die, all of us. What a circus. That alone should make us love each other, but it doesn't. We are terrorized and flattened by life's trivialities. We are eaten up by nothing. Isn't that funny? Isn't isn't that we, we are eaten up by nothing? You know, thinking about these big big issues and having this conversation, it really reframes what you're worried about. I mean, Charles Bukowski's right, you guys. This should make us love each other. The fact that we're all gonna die. You know, think about what made you upset or angry today. Someone didn't give up their seat on the subway. The guy in front of you at the deli took too long to order. You know, your boss didn't say thank you when you handed in your report. Your sister texted back with just okay. One of your friends didn't like your picture on Instagram. Your, Your child or your mother or your father was really short with you on the phone. These are not big deals. This is... When you think about, when you surrender to death and the finality of your existence, you realize not to sweat the small stuff. You realize that there's a difference between macro stressors and micro stressors. This is something I'm always reminding my, you know, my family and friends. A macro stressor, something you should really be concerned about, is when you're unemployed and you have no job, or when you know you lose someone you know who you love. Those are things that that suck and absolutely are worth getting stressed out over. But a micro stressor, but someone cutting in line for you at the bar, or the club, you know the the person at, at you know the the bad service at the restaurant the, the waiter was stressed out and messed up your order these are not things you should be stressing about so when you accept death you realize not only that there's nothing to be afraid of but that all the things that you thought were so worth giving a fuck about in your life are just not you really have nothing else to fear And Manson writes, in saying this, he writes, The acceptance of my death, this understanding of my own fragility, has made everything easier. Suffering through my fears and uncertainties, accepting my failures and embracing rejections, it has all been made lighter by the thought of my own death. The more I peer into the darkness, the brighter life gets, the quieter the world becomes, and the less unconscious resistance I have or I feel to anything. So kind of, you know, remind yourself next time you find yourself getting upset or angry about one of these micro stressors, put it into context. First question to ask yourself is, will it matter a year from now? Will it matter 10 years from now? Will it matter 50 years from now? Bukowski was right. We are all going to die, all of us. That alone should make us love each other, treat each other with, with kindness and respect and dignity. It doesn't, but it should, and it can.
you know, this isn't something that, that's going to happen. This transformation is something that's going to happen in a day. It's certainly not easy to come to terms with your own death. And I wish I could say I, I have. Um, but I think there's a lot we can learn about humans from the from this process. A lot we can learn about people if we study how someone reacts, acts and reacts in the face of death. And, and you know, hospice care, people who know they're going to die in palliative care, who have the time to reflect if they have a couple months to live or a year to live, we can learn a lot from them. You know, because folks who die in an unexpected tragedy, and there, there are far too many of them. I mentioned car accidents or shootings or, you know, uh, just heart attacks, what, whatever happens, they don't have the time to reflect and, and on their life and, and think things over. But people in hospice do. And one of my, you know, one of the articles that, 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 that I really come back to in this discussion, it was in Business Insider, I think in like 2013, 2014. And I'm going to link it um, in the description. But the article's titled Five Things People Regret on Their Deathbed. And it's people in hospice care that are, um, that are you know, surveyed on, 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 on this, this issue. And these are people who are at the end of their lives and they've looked back and, you know, things that they wish they, they, could, they would have known or things they wish they would have done differently. And the five most common ones are, number one, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. That was actually the most common regret, living true to yourself, not others. So caring less what people think. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Number four, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. And number five, I wish that I had let myself be happier. I'm sure there were others, but, you know, we don't need to wait till our death buds to live our lives this way. Live a life true to yourself, not anyone else. Today. Don't work so hard. Try to spend more time doing what you love. Today. Express your feelings to hell with what anyone else thinks. Today. Stay in touch with your friends. Be the first one to reach out. You know, um, I, I mentioned a while back, write someone a kind letter or send someone a book in the mail. Today. Stay in touch with your friends. I, I mentioned that, mentioned that one already. Today. Let yourself be happy. Today, happiness so elusive. I mean, we could do a whole episode on what the hell happiness is anyway, but if you're happy, you're not constantly thinking about whether or not you're happy. A lot of people have the habit of there's always got to be a, you know, a mountain to climb. There's always got to be an issue. Something's always wrong even when, you know, even when everything's great, when you're in good health, when you have a stable job, when you have friends and family. Usually you don't realize how good you got it until something goes wrong. And we're, we're going to be talking about gratitude at some point. Um, the art of gratitude, why why it pays to be grateful. Um, 
But yeah, practice gratitude and, and let yourself be happy. I have a list of quotes up on my wall in my bedroom. And whenever I get stressed out, I look at it. And one of my favorite quotes is, remind yourself that when you die, your to-do list won't be empty. You're always going to have a hundred things to do. Life is always going to be busy. You know, but you have to enjoy your life while it's happening, right? Don't wait until the end. You know, they say life is, you know, I, I feel like I'm repeating myself from another episode, but they say life is, you know, what, what happens when you're busy making other plans. You have to live your life with the mindset of someone on their deathbed. The regret minimization framework, guys. I mentioned it way back when. Live your life as if you're an 80-year-old man or woman looking back in, you know, in the future self, looking back in the past self. Every decision you make, you want to minimize regrets. And it's like Chris Allen sings in that song, Live Like We're Dying. We only got 86, 400 seconds in a day. Okay? Live like you're dying because you really are dying. We're all dying, you know? So why not live that way? Um, some takeaways here. I know it's been a long, heavy, kind of sad. I, I kind of feel a little bit <laughs> a little bit down after this um, discussion, but you know, just just some takeaways about um, you know we discussed why you know we're predisposed towards future uh, pains and pleasures, the asymmetry of time, how temporal neutrality is not realistic. We talked about uh, why exactly we repress our fear of death and how fear of death in children is a manifestation, um, or the fear of death manifests in children through other fears. Um, and of course, we talked about the the dual, the man as having the dual identity, the half animal, half symbolic, um, the physical self and the conceptual self, and how we construct these immortality projects, our legacies to live forever. Uh, we also talked about how keeping the fear of death or, or the the fact, the exactitude of our death in our minds allows us to live more fully um, and, you know, and, and coming to peace and accepting the fear of death is is how we really live our best lives. And of course, the case study of people in hospice and their regrets um, helps to give us perspective on, you know, on our lives. Whew. Jeez, this was, I don't know how I feel after, after this episode, you guys. Uh, this was emotional to record. Um, probably, yeah, much more emotional than the mental illness episode. Personal. Um, probably gonna have to watch Seinfeld or something when this is done, because this, it's a lot to consider. Um, maybe get some ice cream. <laughs> But uh, I hope it's been as, I don't, how do you even describe this? I hope it's been as interesting, as enriching, as informative for me as it has been for you um, to think about these issues. Next week on a much, 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 much lighter note, we're going to be returning to the three-segment format, covering some interesting topics that aren't morbid and dark like this one was including psychology we'll be talking about pets you guys who doesn't love pets dogs cats birds and fish we'll be talking all about how 
pets enhance a perfect uh, person's lives. Nutrition. Is it healthy to eat genetically modified food? And what is the debate surrounding genetically modified organisms, GMOs? Excuse me. And finally, politics. We'll be delving into PC culture and how the politically correct impositions on discourse has been impairing how our society thinks and learns. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Nervous Habits, episode 13. Um, Please send those emails. More than any other episode, would love to hear your feedback on this one. Uh, Nervous Habits Podcast at gmail.com. Nervous Habits Podcast at gmail.com. You know, message me uh, if, you know, your your thoughts, opinions. Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast. Uh, I am going to have some ice cream and watch some cartoons. Uh, But thanks for listening and stay nervous, guys. Take care.